Hi, friends. This is Michael Bowman, and welcome to the Christ Church Podcast. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> How are you doing? You doing okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. Maybe. Yeah. I hope you're doing well. <laughs> welcome to those of you who are new to the podcast. Welcome. And welcome back to those who have been listening for a while. Thanks for being here. On the podcast, we've been discussing really what it looks like to practice in the way of Jesus. We've talked about what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus and have now jumped headfirst into practicing Jesus's way, honing in on specific spiritual disciplines. Lately, those disciplines we've been talking about are really these practices of silence and solitude. And on this episode, we are going to start a new discussion going to dive into a new practice that is the practice of Sabbath or Sabbath keeping. We said on uh, here that silence as a practice clears out the noise. Silence as a practice clears out the noise. In the same way, solitude as a practice clears out the space. Well, Sabbath as a practice clears out our time. So silence clears out the noise, solitude clears out the space, Sabbath clears out our time. They all kind of go hand in hand, and I hope you're kind of seeing that at this point. Sabbath um, is going to be our focus now. Sabbath clears out our time, yeah. Clears out our time. Our time is important, isn't it? Time is money is an all too familiar phrase today. Time is money. We never seem to have enough time. There's only 24 hours in a day. It's a reminder that we're constantly hearing or used to hearing. Or how about that beloved pop song? You know, time is on my side. Yes, it is. Unfortunately, though, I think many of us would argue that the opposite is true. We don't feel like we ever have enough time. Time, how we use our time, if we have too much time on our hands, or if we never seem to have enough time, these are all issues facing us day in and day out. I mean, we understand that if we have too much time, well, that's not a good thing, or at least it seems not to be a good thing. And if we never have enough time, well, that doesn't seem to be a good thing either. So what do we do with time? How do we use our time? Time seems to be a pretty important topic of conversation how much time we devote to certain things like doom scrolling on the internet or Netflix binging or exercising or news consuming or working or social media in in general or uh, committing too much time to to our, our work in general or, or too much time to our social life or yet yeah, time, right? <laughs> time. How we use it, how much time we have. It, it's It's important. It's important that we think about it. That we navigate time. <laughs> I think you're getting the point. Also, I wonder how many times I've said time already on this episode. Sabbath as a practice clears out our time. What do I mean? 
Well, I want to start by talking about Sabbath by beginning with the story that we find in the book of Exodus. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible or the scriptures, especially the book of Exodus, uh, then you will remember that we come into the story of Exodus with a new king coming to the throne in Egypt. There's a new pharaoh, Joseph. Uh, yeah, the you know the coat of many colors guy. <laughs> who ends up having a lot of authority and power in Egypt. Well, Joseph has died and been gone for some time at this point when we come into the story of Exodus. And there's this new king of Egypt who didn't know Joseph and had some concern about the Israelites, of which, of course, Joseph was one. Um, and as this king, as this new king or new pharaoh looked around, he noticed that there seemed to be more Israelites than there were Egyptians, and he feared that they were going to eventually grow too powerful and then, you know, take over. So he enslaves the Israelite people, and under this oppression, he has the people build these supply cities, and they're named off, but it's really just to house all of his excess and wealth. He even ordered that the firstborn male born to any Hebrew woman, that is an Israelite, was to be killed at their birth. Now, this plan of Pharaoh's didn't really work out the way that he wanted to. Some midwives got involved and like kept the boys alive. And, you know, it didn't go according to plan necessarily. But to not to go, attempting here not to go into all the detail and to speed up the story, uh, this baby is born to a Hebrew woman and and she saves this baby boy, her son. Uh, who ends up in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh's own daughter ends up caring for this little boy who Pharaoh's daughter actually names Moses. He's born in, um, to a Hebrew woman, but raised in Pharaoh's household. He ends up, Moses ends up killing an Egyptian kind of taskmaster for beating a Hebrew slave. Then he gets run out of Egypt, fearing for his own life, where he makes his way to Midian, and he marries into the family of the priest there named Jethro. Uh, I'm going to be speeding through Exodus, so I hope you're ready. But Moses has this encounter with God at a burning bush, a bush that is on fire but is not being consumed, and would eventually... Uh, you know, obeying God's command would eventually lead the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, out from slavery in Egypt. The Israelites are wandering around in the desert, being guided by Moses, ultimately being guided by God to make their way into this promised land that God is leading them to. Okay. Whew. There's a lot of details we're leaving out, but we're making our way through the story of the Exodus. And if you want to know where we are in the Bible at this point, we're fast forwarding all the way to Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, we find Moses at Mount Sinai having a conversation with God. In fact, making a covenant with God once more. God is a covenant-making God. If there's anything distinct about Yahweh or, or our God, one of the things is that he is a covenant making God. He is about relationship. Now, remember, God has just saved this people group, the Hebrew slaves, out from under the hand of Pharaoh. And they are now wandering around in the desert. Keep that before you. They're on their way to the promised land that God is giving them. And here we find in Exodus 19, God is making a covenant with them, talking with Moses here, saying, God actually shares with Moses, who then shares with the people that if they are or if they will obey God's voice and keep God's covenant, then they will be God's treasured possession, a holy nation, 
a kingdom of priests, they would be God's own people. All right, now jump another chapter ahead into Exodus 20. So we're doing all this in less than 10 minutes. Good job. Um, in Exodus 20, we find God giving the Ten Commandments. So are you ready to talk about Sabbath now? <laughs> I know, it's like, wow, are you just going to tell us the whole story of Exodus? Uh, not all of it, but yeah. You know, it helps tell the story um, and, and set us up well for the importance of the practice of Sabbath. So here we are. You remember your Ten Commandments, right? If you do, uh, why don't you just try this fun exercise of trying to list them out in order with me as we go. And I promise that you'll see how the Sabbath comes into play. And if you do remember your Ten Commandments, and you're probably already seeing how this all plays out. God begins the first commandment by reminding the people that he is God and they are not. In fact, God says, I am the Lord, your God. That is, I am God and you are not. And then he reminds them again, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then God commands, you shall have no other gods before me. Then God gives a second command, you shall not make for yourself an idol. You will not bow down and worship them. Then third, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, or more commonly put, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Now notice, each of the first three commandments are concerning God, who God is, and what we are to do with this God. I am the Lord your God. You have no other gods before me. You will not make an idol for yourself and bow down and worship them, and you will not uh, take the Lord, my name, the name of your Lord, in vain. The first command, you know, no other gods before me, says forthright that the God of Israel is unlike all of the other gods that the people have ever known. He's not like the gods of Egypt. This God, Yahweh, is not and cannot be confused with the unsatisfiable gods of endless productivity. The other gods desire what you can do for them. Yahweh is not like that. The other gods bind people into things like slavery and oppression, whereas Yahweh frees the people from such things, offering a freedom they have never encountered before. This God is found to be merciful, always loving, kind, and faithful. This God is all about covenant and relationship instead of more and more product. The second command is intimately related to the first, no graven images or idols, and forbids any kind of artistic representation of Yahweh, because in doing so, what God was pointing out is that in trying to make a graven image or an idol, what you're doing is you're trying to locate or confine God, which you can't. You can't confine God. This is something we're still trying to do today. <laughs> It would be an attempt to conform God into our own image, which is what all the other people were doing with their gods. Trying to conform God into our image rather than the other way around. We see this playing out still today. I mean, don't we? Right? See, what happens is when we form God into our image, we then become Lord. We then become God which we can follow that rabbit trail if you want. I don't know if we have enough time <laughs> to see how that plays out. 
but when we make God into an idol, we immediately produce an image for the sake of commodity, right? This, we, when we create God into an idol or make God into an idol, we, we create something that we can then sell or at least, at the very least, benefit from. It becomes an enterprise that skews our focus away from God and toward the image or the idol itself. Uh, in doing so, we've created an image-based religion or just an image or idol religion. We lose relationship. We see it happen throughout Scripture and even in our world today. You know, not long after these commands were given, to just to, to kind of throw some Scripture in there, we find the people, I think it's like Exodus what is it, 30? I have my Bible here. 30, 32, somewhere in there. Let's see. 32. Story of the golden calf. They were just given these Ten Commandments. No idols. And they create a golden calf. They create an idol. <laughs> because Moses was up on Sinai too long. Hey, he may never come down. Maybe God got him. Let's create our own God. A golden calf. Later, we're introduced to David, King David's son Solomon, who becomes king, who we find has this obsession with gold and wealth and, and especially having gold in this temple that he was building in order to, quote, house God as if God could be housed or, again, confined, right? See, when we do this, we become like those who worship such created objects like the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 115. These, these objects, these idols, they have mouths, but do not speak eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Yeah. They're not real. <laughs> they, if, if you made them, I don't know if, if we can say that we made it, I, I don't know if it can be God, right? <laughs> It seems like simple math, but we do it all the time. You don't have to look far and see that we are doing the same thing today with our devices. Pick one, phone, tablet, computer. How, how long has it been since you left the house without one of those? I'm not saying they don't serve a purpose or aren't important. But we're doing the same thing with our devices, our political parties, or even, even our sports teams, just to name a few things. And there's more than that. What else are we making idols out of? We can gather from the first two commandments that the temptations for the people of Israel were a worship of idols and a desire for commodity or production, which by the way, this is what they were used to. <laughs> I mean, let's have some sympathy for them. And by the way, uh, you know, the, their lives in Egypt literally revolved around production more and more and more. But for the sake of our time here, let me remind you of the fourth commandment. God says, this is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In fact, he commits the most time to this command. There's a whole, I'll, I'll read the whole thing to you. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, what does that remind you of? It should hopefully ring a bell, like back to creation. God worked six days and then on the seventh day rested. And here he is saying the same thing to his people. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns for in six days. Here's that reminder. 
The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Sabbath seems to be a pretty big deal. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. See, I told you we'd get to the Sabbath, right? (laughs) Here we are. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And what a wonderful spot for this command to be placed. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but notice with me now in case you have not. The Sabbath command is looking back to the first three, which all introduce us to the God who rests. Then... After it, it looks forward to the final six that concern the neighbor. First three are about God. Then we have the Sabbath. The last six are about the neighbor. Let's walk through those really quickly. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Uh, You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, a.k.a. don't lie. Uh, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. I think it even goes further and says things like, oh, no, I'm sorry. It starts with house, right? And then it says um, wife or slave or ox or donkey or basically don't covet any of your neighbor's stuff. In short... These latter six commands provide rest along or reveal to us how we are to provide rest alongside the neighbor. Now think about what that means. How do these things provide rest for our neighbors? Well, if if your neighbor knows that you're not going to kill them, if you're following that command of God to not to not murder, to not kill, uh yeah, they might sleep easier at night. That might provide them some rest or that you're not going to steal from them or you're not going to lie or lie about them. Uh, If you're not going to covet after their house or wife or slave or donkey or to use Exodus language here, folks. If you're not coveting after their stuff, like their lawnmower or their car. (laughs) Yeah, they might rest a little bit easier. Sabbath rest is right in between who this God is, a God who rests and how we are to provide rest for our neighbors. It's also a command for us to rest ourselves. So we have a God who rests, who's commanding that we rest, and then in doing so, it will help us provide rest for our neighbors. Are we seeing this? Sabbath seems to be pretty important. None of this is new to Yahweh, of course. This is a God... This is God who's been resting from the very beginning of all things as we know them. God has always rested. Remember in the beginning, God created and worked for six days. I just feel like I need to make this point again. And on the seventh day, God rested. As one scholar writes, that divine rest on the seventh day of creation has made clear, A, that Yahweh is not a workaholic. God is not a workaholic. That B, that Yahweh is not anxious about the full functioning of creation. God is not anxious about the full functioning of creation. If God can rest, God's not anxious about how everything is going. And C, that the well-being of creation does not depend on endless work. I hope these words are freeing to you. God is not a workaholic. God is not anxious about the full functioning of creation. God can actually rest. And that the well-being of creation does not depend on endless work. You can stop. You can breathe. You can rest. You can take a break. 
Now think about who these commands are being given to once more. And let me remind you what the people of Israel were coming out of in Egypt. Pharaoh was a harsh ruling king who demanded endless work and endless production from the people. Egypt was a society that was always wanting more and more. There was not time. There was no such thing as rest, just more and more and more. And at one point when the people were still enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt, this is like at the very beginning of our story in Exodus, Moses and Aaron are, are, have come to Egypt and have come before Pharaoh demanding that Pharaoh lets the people of Israel go. Pharaoh, of course, said, no way. I mean, he understand, he understood economics, like he had a good system going here, and this would be a huge hit to his economy and his wealth. So he, of course he says no. But then Pharaoh goes a step further and commands that the taskmasters to the slaves, to the Hebrew people and the Hebrew slaves, uh, were required to make these Hebrew people gather their own straw from now on. Not only, they're not going to provide the straw for them to build these bricks and bricks and bricks, but now they actually had to go gather the straw themselves, but they were not allowed to produce less. The same amount of production was still required from them. See, this was a no Sabbath kind of environment. It was all about the endless amount of production. It was all aimed after more wealth, more power for Pharaoh. See, the Sabbath command, in turn, teaches us about God's character, which is like in direct contrast with the character of Pharaoh, especially in the story of Exodus. <laughs> I mean, really. The Sabbath command reveals that our God is not like Pharaoh. Yahweh, our, our God, is a Sabbath-keeping God, which reveals that restfulness, restfulness is at the very center of life. God not only keeps the Sabbath, but God commands that we do as well. It seems to me that Sabbath and rest are a necessary part of our daily rhythms. You do realize that you actually need rest, right? Like, like you understand that, right? Your body physically needs to stop every now and then. You need to sleep. Yeah, you actually need rest. Yeah, we are not meant to endlessly work and produce and make more and more. We are actually meant to come to complete stops and find rest. We need it. It's not, it's not a want. It's a need. By the way, and I'm hoping that we'll get more into this later. I'm sure that we will. But the word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew term. Shabbat. Shabbat literally means to stop. That's what we do when we Sabbath. We, we stop. Jesus shows up as Jesus does. <laughs> Jesus shows up and embodies this further in his person and in his teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, for example, we find Jesus saying things like this. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in death. <laughs> cannot serve God in wealth. And later, Jesus goes further with an invitation to what it's all about. And it's a wonderful invitation that I hope we all receive. Jesus says, come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus offers an alternative to the busy, product-driven, no-rest-having kind of life. He embodies Sabbath rest for a people who are no longer trapped by a system committed to only productiveness. There's nothing wrong with being productive, but when that's the only thing you're after, yeah. Sabbath in this way is an act of resistance. You know what? (laughs) As I hear myself say that out loud, I hope that makes you feel pretty punk rock. (laughs) And of course, I mean that in a good way. Don't even question that. Of course, it should make you feel pretty punk rock. Sabbath is an act of resistance. To quote another scholar, it, it is a visible insistence that our lives are not defined by the production and consumption of commodity goods. We are meant for something else, folks. We're meant for something more, something better. Sabbath then is an alternative, still quoting here, it's an alternative to the demanding, chattering, pervasive presence of advertising and its great liturgical claim of professional sports that devour our rest time. Ooh, is this true for anyone else? (laughs) That's conviction right there. It's an alternative to that way of, of being, to that liturgical kind of lifestyle. We don't rest. We just add more things, different things to our schedules. We don't seek out rest. We seek out entertainment. Hmm. Sabbath gives us our time back. But it also puts into question our trust in God, doesn't it? And think about it. Sabbath requires that we fully stop, that we stop producing, that we do nothing. It requires that we give all of our time to resting, not doing anything. The fruit of our trust is whether or not we can practice the Sabbath. Like, do we trust God enough? Seriously, do we trust God enough to fully stop for a whole day? Do we trust God enough to to rest? Eugene Peterson talks about sleep in this way. I think it's a great quote, and it's kind of how I like to think about Sabbath, but... You know, he says, in prep for the day, I go to sleep to get out of the way for a while. I go to sleep to get out of the way for a while. That's, that's trust, right? I can go to sleep because I know that the world doesn't depend on me being awake and constantly producing more and more or doing more and more. I can go to sleep because I trust that God is the one that's actually in control. I can stop and rest for a while because it's not all up to me anyway. Do we believe that? Do we believe that the fate of this world does not depend solely on us? Could we actually give up control for 24 hours a week? Do you think we can do that? It's hard, isn't it? I know it is. Uh, Look, I know I'm the one with the microphone, but I'm not saying any of this is easy. 
I do think it's necessary. <laughs> the author of Hebrews writes, So then a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from the labors as God did from his. We're just modeling after God's own rhythm. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, the author writes. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. Let me remind you of just that, that encouragement. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Yeah. Yeah. Let us make every effort, folks. We need to allow ourselves the time to rest, to pause. But, but we also must understand that Sabbath is a little more intentional than simply pausing. Uh, it's been said, and I'm quoting here, but it's been said that Sabbath is not simply the pause that refreshes. It is. It is that. Sabbath is a pause that refreshes, but it's not only that. It is the pause that transforms. See, whereas the Israelites are always tempted to acquisitiveness, which, you know, is simply just this excessive interest at obtaining or even acquiring more money or more material goods, just more and more and more and more. They're always, the Israelites we see in the story are always tempted to this. Sabbath is an invitation to receptivity. We might be tempted to acquisitiveness, but in Sabbath, we are receiving an invitation to receptivity and acknowledgement that what is needed is given and need not be seized. So we stop and we rest and we recognize that everything, even life itself, is a gift. This is not something that we can take or achieve even. It is a gift. And like any gift, it can only be received, which in turn gives way to things like joy and play, and we will get there. Yeah, joy and play and delight. That, that's what's next in our conversation about Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. As we begin to cultivate a practice of Sabbath keeping, my hope is that we will begin to notice that the Sabbath does not only affect one day of our week, but it will have an effect on our whole life. I can promise you that. Yeah. Yeah, join me again next week as we continue our conversation about the practice of Sabbath. Okay, grace and peace.